Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wag, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 58, in which we will talk about why you should take your van to a dealership every once in a while, a tale from the road involving a gas pedal that didn't want to turn off, a product review of the Geyser Shower, a place to visit that has a musical connection to your vehicle, and a resource recommendation involving two old friends that you can listen to anytime you'd like. Thanks for listening. Once again, glad to have you back. It has been a heck of a month and year, and I've got some loose ends to tie up with you, so I figure we should just jump right into that. First, I have been contacted by some folks who want to run ads on the podcast, and while it is not my intention to turn this podcast into some giant commercial venture, because, come on now, I would appreciate having a little bit of money to help offset the costs, because as more people listen, it actually costs me more money to do the podcast. So I've been asked to run a few ads, and the way this works is that I just set a time in the episode, in the middle of the episode, when an ad will run. I'm not actually putting the ad in myself, so I don't have that much control over it. I want feedback from you guys. If you find an ad offensive or annoying, or if you're simply going to stop listening to the podcast because there's an ad in there, please let me know. All that would be valuable feedback. My promise to you is that I will not be evil. I am not going to run ads or allow ads on the podcast for anything that I don't think is a decent product or service. And if I find out that some of those ads have run, because again, I don't have total control, I will take steps and I will say so in the podcast coming up. So your feedback is super important. Thank you for it. I appreciate everyone who has written to me uh, over the year now and has really helped shape the podcast. That said, um, (laughs) like I started out, this has been a very rough year and month. I know I owe you guys stickers. Several of you have written asking for stickers and I've said, yes, I'll send you stickers. And I haven't actually sent you the stickers. So I will do that. I have the list of your names. I have them here. I just haven't done it yet because COVID has really messed me up, number one, and the U.S. post offices are a mess right now, number two, or at least they were over Christmas. That's what I was holding off on. So I haven't forgotten about you. I will get them to you. And if you're someone who doesn't know what I'm talking about and would like a sticker, if you collect stickers, I have stickers that are of the Hook Waka Bang logo. Hook Waka Bang is question mark greater than exclamation point. And uh, it's kind of a motto of the College of Curiosity. And I have these Euro decals that are suitable for the outside or inside of vehicles. They're vinyl or I think they're three by four, something like that. Anyway, if you would like a sticker and you are in the United States, please send me a note at jeff at builttogo.com. That's built to go with two T's, not three, not one. And I will add you to the list to mail you out a sticker. Okay, one last piece of business. In episode 55, I talked about guns, and I knew that I was going to get some feedback. And I did, and most of it was very positive. And in fact, even the quote-unquote negative feedback was positive. But one friend took me to task. Um, His name is David. He's from California. I've known him for many years. He is somebody who has studied this issue a lot more than I have. So I take what he says seriously. He asked me to add these points about having a gun in vans. Number one, 
he does not recommend using a gun as a deterrent. I mean, and, and this I've heard before. Basically, you do not point a gun at anything that you do not mean to destroy. That's a basic lesson of gun safety. So I mentioned uh, pointing a gun at someone as a deterrence, and he is suggesting that that is a bad and not a recommended thing. So I just wanted to pass that along. I also referred to pellets as basically the same thing as bullets. I was talking about in the most general terms, but that's a little misleading. If you shoot somebody with a pellet from a pellet gun, it will hurt. And it may even cause a little damage. And yes, you can shoot someone's eye out with one of those things. But it really doesn't compare to a bullet in the amount of damage that's done. And I may not have made that clear enough. So do not mistake a pellet gun for a handgun. One is far more dangerous and lethal and regulated than the other. Another point he made was that carrying a gun in your pocket is really unwise. And I did mention carrying guns in pockets. Not a great idea. You should have your gun in a holster designed for that weapon. That would be far safer. And the last point was I mentioned fake weapons, and he suggests that you don't want to bluff in a case where you're actually escalating things. If you point a fake weapon at somebody, they're going to feel like they have to pull out their real weapon that they might have, and you're in serious trouble. So I'm just passing that along. The bottom line is, if you are considering carrying a firearm in your vehicle, you have two things you need to do. Number one, take a safety class. Know how that weapon works and how to use it safely. And number two, study, study, study the legal implications of traveling with a firearm because it is very complicated. Enough said. Let's talk about electric vans. So a few years ago, as I was driving around Chicago, I saw the coolest van. And this was right when I was first thinking about building out a van. It was this boxy van with a giant windshield and these really kind of futuristic headlights. And I just thought, wow, that thing is amazing. But there were no logos on it or anything. I couldn't figure out what it was. So I went online and I googled futuristic van and I found it. And it was a Navistar E-Star van. And it was a former FedEx van. In 2010, they partnered with the company Navistar to purchase a whole bunch of E-Star electric vans. And that was indeed the van I saw. And then I read a little bit more about it. This van cost $150,000 new. Okay, that's a bit much. And it had a range of 100 miles. That's right, folks. You could drive your van for 100 miles and then it would have to spend all night charging. And its top speed was 50 miles an hour. Now, Navistar stopped making these vans in 2013 as part of a restructuring. They're still in business. They make a bunch of those big military-looking police vehicles that you might be seeing if you're watching the news lately. So the company's fine, but they got rid of their electric vans. And FedEx gave up on the electric van idea until recently. And so there's a lot of excitement now because Amazon is committed to electric vans. FedEx is committed to electric vans. UPS even has some electric vans coming. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means that in the future, we're going to have some electric van options. And in fact, if you're in the UK right now, there already are electric vans being turned into campers. And they're NV200s. Nissan has an electric version of the NV200 that is a popular model for converting into a camper. And Winnebago has just announced that they have an electric RV right now. And it's a Class A. That is the standard kind of bus-looking 
RV that most of the time when people say motorhome, that's what they picture. It uses a sodium nickel battery pack, has a range of 85 to 125 miles, and it takes about four hours to charge it up to 75%. Now, they're not selling these as RVs just yet. This is kind of a a platform for maybe mobile offices and things like that. But folks, electric vans, electric RVs are coming. But before we get too excited about that, let's take a look at some of the problems that this presents for us. Most folks who are building their own camper vans are looking to boondock. I mean, let's face it, if you're listening to this podcast, you are probably not the type of person who's going to go stay at a campground every time you go out. Maybe you are, and you're fine. that's fine, and you're welcome here. But an awful lot of us build our own vans with the thought of being able to travel anywhere and not have to rely on anybody else's stuff. Electric vans actually cause us to rely a bit more on society because because when people talk about electric vans, they're talking about range and speed and all that kind of stuff. But what they often overlook is how long it takes to charge one of these things. Now, those of us who travel a lot put a lot of miles on our vehicles, and I have been known to drive well over a thousand miles in a day routinely. It's not that unusual for me. But if I were to do that in an electric vehicle, even one with, say, a 500-mile range, which I don't think exists right now, I couldn't travel the way I do. Because it takes so long to charge these things that I would have to plan around my charging. As it is right now, I can drive basically anywhere, find a gas station, and in five minutes I have my complete range fully replaced. But with an electric vehicle... I would have to drive from station to station and plan on spending hours there in order to be able to continue. That's going to be a problem for electric vans for a long time to come. Unless we come up with a system where batteries are replaceable and you can unplug one and plug one in, or if there is some amazing change in the science of batteries, that's going to be our reality. So that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is a thing that folks who convert Priuses into campers encounter. They know that their Prius has a giant battery. So why not use that battery to power things like fridges and microwaves and all that stuff? Well, it turns out that's really not easy. The battery that drives the drivetrain of electric vehicles isn't 12 volts. It's usually 350 to 400 volts. So you need more circuitry to get that down to 12 volts. And that wastes energy. In fact, even in the Prius, stuff doesn't use that battery except the drivetrain. If you've ever owned a Prius, you know that you have a 12-volt battery in there that starts the engine and powers the lights and all that kind of stuff. So don't think that just because you've got an electric van, you're going to have this massive battery. You're still going to need a leisure battery. And you're still going to need a way to charge that leisure battery. And right now, the equipment that's going to charge that leisure battery off of the drivetrain battery is going to be hard to find. Other things to consider with electric vehicles is that they're heavier. They tend to be lower to the ground because they are heavier and they need to be low to the ground to maintain a low center of gravity for stability. And those batteries take up a lot of space. Now, a Prius is a very well-designed vehicle, and there's a lot of space back there. But if you open that back hatch, you can see just how massive that battery is. So let's not get totally excited about electric vans just yet. However, 
I do think that in 10 years or so, they're going to be a lot more common and we're going to be using them to make campers. So, let's take a closer look at a van that's been making a lot of news lately, and that is the Rivian van. Now, Rivian started out being famous for making a, uh, a cyber truck, as they call them. But Amazon just spent an incredible amount of money buying 100,000 of these Rivian vans, and they claimed that they will have 10,000 on the road by 2022. In fact, some have already been seen in the wild, so this is real. Now, UPS doesn't sell their used trucks ever. You will never find a UPS van turned into a camper unless something dramatic happened, because UPS not only drives their vehicles into the ground... They also don't want anyone to impersonate their drivers, so they actually destroy the vehicles that they are done with. We don't know what Amazon is going to do with their vans yet, so there is a chance that in the future, some of those 100,000 vans could be available for us to mess with. Unlike the FedEx vehicle, the E-Star from 2010, these things have come a long way. And while full specs haven't been released at this time, some Rivian vehicles have a range of 400 miles. Now, that puts it within the realm of camper van use. Like, for example, let's say that campgrounds in the future had electric vehicle charging stations. I mean, obviously, they have 50-amp outlets in many cases. That is a serious amount of power. You could easily charge any electric vehicle with a 50-amp outlet. So imagine you, uh, you're the kind of person who's going to go from campground to campground. 400 miles is a decent range. So I could completely see that working. But it's funny, though. They ran into a problem with the Rivian. It's an electric van, right? That means it doesn't make any noise. So they had to actually add a noise to this thing. And people have a lot of opinions about the noise. So I'm actually going to play it for you here. If you hear this sound, it means that there is a Rivian van driving near you. Now, I don't really mind that sound, and I like that it kind of makes a fake Doppler effect as it speeds up, although it's going to make a real Doppler effect too, so I wonder how that's going to work. But uh, anyway, electric vans are fun and cool and an interesting thing to think about. But right now, the way our infrastructure is, having an all-electric vehicle does add a lot of limits. And in my experience, van life folks are not about limits, so I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we are there for hybrid vehicles, such as the Sienna van that's coming out that is a hybrid, meaning that it'll run on gasoline or electric. I definitely think we're there, but I don't think we're quite ready for the all-electric vehicle yet. Let's see what Winnebago does, because they're probably going to lead the way on this. Tech Talk. Should you take your van to the dealership? Well, you're going to get a strange answer for me on this. I personally don't like dealerships. I don't like all the glitz and the glamour, and I don't like that when you take your vehicle in for an oil change, they're pestering you to buy a new vehicle. I don't like that they charge $500 to replace rear shocks, which can take as little as 10 minutes and cost you 50 bucks. All that said, there are times when I do think there's value in taking your vehicle to a dealership, and in fact, what I do is whenever I buy a vehicle, and I almost always buy a used vehicle, I take it to the dealer for the first service. 
because the dealers are up to date on things like recalls and they know the vehicles best. So if I have a dealer look over the vehicle and tell me everything's fine, I feel pretty good about that. The old days where Joe's Garage down the corner knew everything about every car, it's, it's not really like that anymore. Vehicles are much more complicated, much more computer-oriented, and the dealerships have licensed computers to diagnose vehicles, and not every Joe's Garage is going to have that stuff. So there is some stuff that only a dealer can do, but... For regular, everyday maintenance, I like to do it myself when possible. Oil changes? Absolutely, I like to do that myself. Um, changing rear shocks? Yeah, I'll do that myself. Changing some exhaust parts? Absolutely. But once a year, every once in a while, I do recommend you take your vehicle into the dealer. And I'm saying this for more recent vehicles. If your vehicle was made in the last 10 years, sure. If you're rocking a 1975 Econoline, yeah, Joe's Garage is going to be able to handle just about everything for that. In fact, maybe even better than the dealership. So, that's my two cents on dealerships. I tend to avoid them, but sometimes they are useful. And while never the cheapest way to go, they will be the most authoritative in many cases. Tales from the Road Back when I lived in Utah in the early 90s, I had a job where I was frequently driving a pickup truck around, uh, often towing these massive tractors from field to field. I was managing a few farms, and I was in a brand new Ford pickup truck, and this thing was nice. Most of the pickup trucks we had were just beat and covered with dirt and tomato juice, but this thing was primo, brand new. It was the pride and joy of our fleet. And I was driving it down Route 15, I-15, if you're familiar with... Uh, Salt Lake City at all. You certainly are familiar with I-15. And I was taking the exit for Lehigh, which is in the southern part of the valley, not too far from Provo. And as I was going down the exit ramp, I stepped on the brake and expected the truck to slow down. But it didn't. It actually gained speed. So of course I pressed the pedal harder and it gained more speed. And I was in one of these situations where all my muscle memory was telling me to press the pedal harder, but everything I saw was telling me, if I do that, I am going to crash this pickup truck. And I also wasn't alone in the vehicle. One of my coworkers was in the seat next to me. So what do you do in this situation? Well, thankfully, I had the presence of mind to realize that if what I'm doing isn't working, and again, every muscle in my body is telling me to press harder on that pedal, I should stop doing it. So fighting against instinct, I lifted my foot up off the pedal, I flipped it into neutral, and then let the vehicle coast until I had more control over the situation. And then I actually looked at the brake pedal and stepped on it with my boot and got the vehicle to stop rather abruptly. Now I apologized to my coworker and said, I'm really sorry about that. So what happened? And this is a valuable lesson actually. Did the vehicle malfunction? It was a brand new vehicle. It seems like a strange malfunction. Well, it didn't malfunction, but it could possibly be considered a design flaw. And I wonder if this is what's happened in many of these cases of sudden acceleration we hear that are common in, say, the old Audi 5000. I was wearing boots, 
and my boots were wide. I mean, I was out working on farms. I had these big, heavy boots on. I did not have a lot of pedal feel coming through the boots. And the gas pedal was much closer to the brake pedal than I was used to in our older vehicles. So while I was stepping on the brakes, I was also stepping on the gas. And the gas was overpowering the brake, meaning that I was accelerating. And because of muscle memory and the way we drive, you know, we don't actually drive all that actively much of the time. We're just reacting to things kind of subconsciously. Because of that, I had to force myself to basically stop driving the truck and reconsider all my data and act accordingly. I was lucky. If I had panicked, I would have simply stepped on that pedal harder and gone even faster. And I think that explains a lot of the sudden acceleration we've seen. So anyway, that happened. And what I have done since then is learned not to drive in boots if I can at all help it. I actually will keep the boots in the back and drive with sneakers on because that's a lot better. But if you can take one thing away from this story, if what you're doing isn't doing what you want, stop doing it and reevaluate. Product review. Uh, a listener by the name of Danny, thank you, Danny, suggested that I review the Geyser Shower System. Now, let's be clear. I do not own a geyser shower system, so my review is going to be based on my research of this thing. And that's maybe not all that valuable, but it is valuable in two ways. One, it, it tells you about a product you may not have known of, and two, it gives you some things to think about if you decide that you want to purchase one of these things. This thing is an all-in-one shower unit. So imagine a Jackery is an all-in-one power unit. This is kind of the same thing for water. It is a pump and water container and shower spray nozzle and actually a an automatically wetting sponge attachment all in one. And you plug it into your 12 volts of your van and people who own this thing seem to love it. It is about the size of two two liter soda bottles attached to each other with maybe another half of a two liter soda bottle on top of one of them. So it's not tiny, but it's not too big. It holds about a gallon of water, and in its normal configuration, it pumps water through a special sponge, and you can adjust the flow rate. And so you could give yourself a nice hot sponge bath with this thing using less than a gallon of water. Now it comes in two different models. One, you add your own hot water that you make on a stove, and that's about $250. Another one, it will heat the water itself with electricity and that one's about $350. What I really like about this thing is its portability and simplicity. The 12 volt plug is 16 feet long, so you can take it far away from your vehicle. And if you are in a no build type of van, this is excellent for things like doing dishes, washing yourself, washing the dog, washing off the windows. I mean, you can do basically any cleaning task you need with this without the need for building out all the fancy stuff with pumps and tanks. And if you really want hot water and you don't want to use a stove, the more expensive version is an option. But here are some caveats. First off, you can't let this thing freeze. If it freezes, it's going to get ruined. Second, the one that heats the water itself draws about 10 amps. 
that's a lot and it takes about 15 to 45 minutes to heat the water that's a whole lot of power in fact what you would probably want to do is do this while your engine's running and then stop and then use it because you're going to need a lot of batteries to power this thing. That's my biggest concern is how much energy this thing draws. Not that I'm surprised. Heating water is a high energy application. So if you are looking for a solution for bathing and cleaning that is out of the box, doesn't require you to build anything, this might be the perfect thing for you. In fact, it, it's great for car camping. There's no reason why you couldn't use this with a tent. All you need is water and a 12-volt power supply, and you have everything you need to be clean. The sponges come with sealable pouches, so you can have his and her sponges or a, a dishes sponge and a personal sponge, whatever. You can buy them on the site. Yeah, honestly, I wish that they would send me a unit for testing because I would like to play with it. So I'll have a link in the show notes. It doesn't seem to be available on Amazon. I'll just link to the company. It is the Geyser All-in-One Shower. I think it's pretty cool. Thanks, Danny. A place to visit. <laughs> Just like with the previously reviewed product, I have not used this thing I'm about to recommend, but it looks like fun. Uh, this is a concept that came out, I think, in the 70s, and the idea was that you could have roads play music. That is, you could cut grooves into the road surface, and as you drove over them, it would play music. And there was one of these at Disney World way, way, way back when they first built it, and it's long gone, and I believe it played zippity-doo-dah as you drove over it. Again, long gone, you can't go to that one. But there is one that appears to still exist, and it's in Lancaster, California, which is north of L.A., and when you drive over it at 55 miles an hour, it plays a wonky version of the William Tell Overture, which a lot of people know as the Lone Ranger theme. It's kind of a cool, special thing. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes to a YouTube video that plays it. I don't want to mess with the guy's copyright and play the sound of it here. But, you know, why not? If you're in the L.A. area and you're looking for something fun to do, check this road out, have your van play some music, and, and just, just have a little bit of fun with it. Okay, resource recommendation. A lot of what I do in this podcast and a lot of my knowledge of how vehicles work comes from a radio program called Car Talk. Now, almost everybody my age and older who has ever listened to public radio is well familiar with Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers. They were the hosts of this show called Car Talk for 30 years. And they were MIT-educated engineers who ran a little tiny mechanic shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And every week they would have this show where people would call in and say, Hey, my car's making this noise. What is it? And they would do their best to diagnose it and fix it over the radio. This was a highly comedic show. It feels like listening to old friends when you listen to it. So if you're a young person and you've never heard of Car Talk... I've got a treat for you. All 30 years of their weekly episodes are available to listen to. It's at cartalk.com. You can go and listen to them. And while you're not probably going to find the specific answer to your specific problem there, if you listen enough, 
you will learn a lot about how to diagnose problems and some general things about how cars work and how to figure out where to look. It's, it's kind of meta and you're going to have a great time doing it. So again, cartalk.com, click and clack the Tappet Brothers. Ray and Tom Maiazzi are their real names. The show went off the air five years ago. Uh, sadly, Tom Maiazzi died at the age of 77. He had a good long life, and we, we reaped a lot of benefit from it. All their information about vehicles is going to be older, but it doesn't matter. If you listen to the show, you're going to have fun, and you're going to learn a bunch of things. And I'll stop talking so you can go listen to it right now. Q&A. How do you keep bugs? out of your vehicle. I've seen a lot of people ask this lately, and this is especially for the no-build people. Now, if you're going to build out your van, there's all kinds of screens that you can get that you can attach to your sliding door opening. They have magnets in the middle that snap them shut. If you have a sprinter van, they make lots of commercial options for this. But I'm talking here about folks who are maybe car camping or have a no-build or a minivan or something like that. You know, the the windows in those things don't come with screens, typically. So what do you do to put up a screen? Well, there's a few tricks you can do. One is this thing, it's called a door sock, I think. I'll put a link in the show notes to these things. But it's this piece of nylon that you can drag and pull over the top of your doors. And it's basically screen material at that point when it's stretched apart. And if you roll down your windows, you've basically created two big screened openings there. It also keeps the sun out. So these things are pretty cool. I actually do use these when I'm camping in places that I am not worried about stealth. Because they're kind of obvious from the outside. And they don't fit every vehicle the same way. So you have to experiment a lot with them. On my NV200, I have to use some strong magnets to keep them in place properly. But they're very inexpensive and they give me a ton of ventilation, which I am so desperate for in the summer. Another option is if you have a vehicle with squarish windows, like if you have a four-door vehicle and the windows in the back have a nice square opening when the windows are down, you can actually buy gutter guards, uh, that is screens that go over gutters of your house, you can cut a piece of that to fit that opening perfectly, and that will also act as a screen, allowing air to come in and bugs to stay out. If you have an irregular opening, it's going to take some work. You're going to have to figure out how to keep that shape in place. You might need to build a frame for it, or maybe you're going to magnet it or suction cup it. I don't know. You're going to have to figure that part out. And another little weird thing. Mosquitoes, biting insects, are attracted to your carbon dioxide. So that means that if you have air blowing out through the roof and being sucked in the windows, the insects are not going to tend to come in through the windows even though air is being pulled in because they can't detect any carbon dioxide. All the carbon dioxide you're breathing out is going out through the roof. So they're likely going to be up there. And because there's pressure of air coming out, they're not going to be able to fly against that, even if you don't have a screen. So turning on a fan that's blowing out can actually help you keep some insects away. Anyway, there's a few tips that might help you out. I hope we up here in the north can get to the season where we have to worry about bugs. Right now, we're much more worried about snow and ice. Well, thank you for listening to this episode 58. I appreciate you being here and your continued listenership. Music, as always, was by Simon Wagg. And if you're not aware, we do have a Facebook group. It is called Built to Go, a Facebook group. Imagine that. Until next time, remember what some anonymous person said. Once you need less, 
you will have more.